planet Earth 66 million years ago. We now know so much about a world that was ruled by the dinosaurs. And the latest imaging technology enables us to bring them all to life. This is Prehistoric Planet, the official podcast, an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by BBC Studios' Natural History Unit. I'm your host, Mike Gunton, an executive producer of the series on Apple TV Plus. All episodes are available now. Prehistoric Planet is one of the most ambitious productions I have ever worked on. It's taken over 10 years to make. The first series relied on a vast, multidisciplinary team of almost 1,600 people, over three continents, and filming in 14 countries. Just the animation and visual effects team alone was nearly 900 strong. This army of talented creatives made 95 animated creatures. And I'm told that if a single computer was responsible for the rendering, which is the processing of the images for the series, it would have taken that computer 3,000 years to complete the job. It has been a remarkable feat of coordination and collaboration. The secret behind Prehistoric Planet is this. I don't want this just to be a natural history series about dinosaurs. What I really want to do is invent a time machine. I want Prehistoric Planet to feel so realistic, so authentic, that when you're sitting at home watching, it feels as if we've actually traveled back 66 million years. We've opened the doors of that time machine, taken all our gear out, and started filming just as we would if we were making a Planet Earth documentary today. But of course, time machines don't exist. So it's fair to ask, how do you do that? Well, in this episode, we're going to tell you. We're going to show you just how that time machine works. Perhaps the best way to do that is to look at one scene, a microcosm of everything we set out to achieve. His great size and his battle scars are evidence that he is a survivor. And that perhaps in her eyes makes him an attractive partner. The T-Rex courtship sequence from the Freshwater episode from Series 1 was actually the very first sequence we made, the one where the fusion of natural history filmmaking and photorealistic creature animation was put to the test. And it was the one that gave us the confidence that this show could actually work. And of course, it starred the superstar of the dinosaur world, Tyrannosaurus Rex. From its first big screen appearance in a 1918 silent movie, to its scenery-crunching role in Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park, that image of a monstrous killing machine has prevailed. But like all the dinosaurs in Prehistoric Planet, we wanted to show a different side to this extraordinary animal. For me, this sequence encompasses the ethos, if you like, the DNA of the series, and it shows animals living everyday life. In this case, winning a mate. So here are two people deeply involved in the sequence. Series producer Tim Walker and producer Paul Thompson. 
They're going to open the door of the time machine to reveal the innermost workings and show you just how this sequence came to life. Paul, you were the producer of the Freshwater episode. I'm the series producer, so I have the luxurious position of working across the whole team and across all the episodes. And I always think that part of the role of being a series producer is a little bit like being a parent. You know, you're a parent to this massive team, but you're also a parent to the episodes. And then within each episode, the sequences. And I am a parent. I've got two kids. And as a parent, you can never say you've got a favourite kid. But I can say I've got a favourite sequence. And I think my favourite sequence out of the whole of the series was the T-Rex courtship sequence, which you made. Mm. And how did that come about? When we started the series and we set out on this journey, we knew there were some things that we had to do. And one of them was to feature T-Rex. They're bigger than any individual representation of themselves. So it felt like we were taking this bit of almost like Hollywood real estate and had to do our thing with it. He's often depicted, as I say, he's often depicted, right, straight away. You just think of it as one individual. The tyrant lizard king. Right, exactly. You know, he's so often kind of heroic character, you know, the, the main character in his own thing. Um, but I quite like the idea of trying to play with that a little bit and featuring a T-Rex that was actually quite old, had suffered an injury, was having a bit of a bad day. You expect T-Rex to come roaring out of the trees and be this big character, but we find him laid out on the forest floor. This old male has just brought down a triceratops. But in doing so, he's been injured. T-Rex are built for hunting large herbivores, but many of those have evolved heavy defensive weapons. Decades of battling armoured prey has scarred his body. One battle even cost him the tip of his tail. These new injuries are more serious. At his great age, infection is a real risk. One of the reasons why I love it so much as a sequence is because it encompasses the ethos of the series, that idea of introducing the familiar but the unexpected. So the familiar is T-Rex, but the unexpected is that we then go on to see him, it is a him, as a lover, not a fighter. You know, so often depicted as a fighter. Yeah, absolutely. So that was another way of doing it. So once we've met him, he makes his way to a river. River water could help to clean his wounds. He stands a good chance of living to fight another day. But that day could come sooner than expected. Freshwater also draws animals together and can be a source of conflict between animals in their territory. So we hear a rumbling in the bushes off camera. Another T-Rex. And for a while you think they're going to fight. female. She's younger and smaller. But nonetheless, she might also be a rival. He, however, makes it clear that he's not interested in fighting. And 
they end up courting and mating, which introduces a whole new, more interesting side of T-Rex's behaviour than the usual biting and fighting side that I think everyone can say they've seen before. They do normal, everyday stuff. Every day, you know, and they live for a really long time. And if you were out in the field filming them, you'd capture these little vignettes of behaviour. Yeah, the kind of day in the life is, you know, shorthand for how we do these kind of sequences. And this was just one particularly eventful day, but actually quite normal day for a T-Rex. But what's special about today is that we're watching and we've given you this glimpse into his world for just those few minutes. In the coming weeks, they mate frequently. Eventually, she'll lay up to 15 eggs. And with them comes the promise of the next generation. Everything in prehistoric planets starts with the fossil record. You know, that's our starting point for the animals, for the plants, for the landscapes, isn't it? So we know loads about T-Rex already. There's loads of fossils that have been found. It's been analysed for years. But we do something special on prehistoric planet. We do, and we, you know, as always with T-Rex, it's never more controversial than it's with our kind of main character. So we had to come up with a skeletal diagram for the animal, you know, an agreement on exactly how long all the bones are. Science can always kind of equivocate and say there's a percentage chance here, a percentage chance there. We have to build the final T-Rex for our show. So yeah, a skeletal diagram was essential to settle upon the 3D structure of the animal. We had really talented skeletal and musculature artists create the bare bones of our T-Rex. In paleontology, 99% of the time, all you get is the bones, and not even all of them a lot of the time. So one of the ways you can convey that information is to try to assemble all of the bones into a single diagram. That's often accompanied by a black silhouette, which shows where the muscles and soft tissues would have gone, so you really get a feel for what the animal as a whole should be. My name is Scott Hartman. I'm a vertebrate paleontologist at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. When working with T-Rex, the goal was to produce something that was as faithful as possible, but also not to just fall into the tropes of previous reproductions, which is particularly easy to do when everyone knows what it's supposed to look like. You may have seen past T-Rexes with a much more upright, sort of almost Godzilla pose, tail dragging stance. That's been changing steadily for a while to the more modern horizontal tail in the air stance. Uh, Jurassic Park pretty effectively did that. And in fact, the Jurassic Park T-Rex has become iconic, but as it turns out, possibly less realistic. They made the arms, even though they're small in that animal, they actually made them about twice the size they are in real life. I'm not sure why, I guess it just looked too wimpy. And so a lot of those things, of course, are changed to be more accurate. The forearms are the right incredibly small size, showing how they really weren't probably useful for a whole lot. We were very careful to select specific specimens. In our case, the initial T-Rex was based upon a specimen nicknamed Sue from the Field Museum in Chicago. And we built that up from the bones to try to make sure all the proportions were right. Rebuilt it up based upon all the inferred muscular anatomy. And then, of course, afterwards, they also spent a lot of time looking at how chunky would you expect a large predator of this size to be to get the sort of excellent, robust, dad bod T-Rex version that came out that just looks, I think, absolutely fantastic. 
And then after that, we do the design of the exterior of the animal, don't we? We work very closely with Dr. Darren Nash, yep. who advises us on how the animals look. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you've got the bones and the muscles, but then you've got all of that you know, life appearance stuff to do with um, skin colour, skin texture, camouflage, obviously incredibly important. And when you've got a tricky science question, time for Dr. Darren. My name is Darren Nash. I'm a paleontologist and author, and I'm the chief scientific consultant for the Prehistoric Planet. So in building our Tyrannosaurus model, we used uh, a completely up-to-date, highly accurate skeletal model. That was our starting point. Reconstructed the musculature. Everything there is completely accurate and not really up for debate. The thing that is up for debate is what do we do in terms of how much skin we put on the soft tissue, how feathery or scaly do we make it? Now, at the time that we're building our Tyrannosaurus rex, these things are all the subject of pretty hot and acrimonious disagreement. And so we had to have hard decisions on every detail of the reconstruction. So I had decided that we're going to show all of our dinosaurs with lips. Now, the issue of whether dinosaurs had lips or not is very contentious, and there's always arguments about it. And when I say lips, I don't mean anything like what we humans have. I mean lips like, say, what lizards and snakes have. So that's one kind of controversial thing that we had a hardline decision on. One of the really interesting and kind of annoying things about dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus rex is you can't just, like, make up a skin texture for these animals. You have to pay attention to what the fossils actually preserve. Of course, conventionally... Tyrannosaurus has been shown as entirely scaly, but since the early 2000s, we've known with absolute certainty that Tyrannosaurs had filaments. They had this like fuzzy covering. For prehistoric planet, we went for a sort of sparse kind of peach fuzz effect on the upper surface of the animal. It's like the animal's entirely scaly. In terms of working out how the animal moved, how it placed its feet, again, we're in the advantage for a dinosaur like Tyrannosaurus in that actually a lot of work has been done on working out how this animal would have worked, how much range of motion there is available at the various joints, how its feet match with the various footprints we've got, what it means for how the animal would have balanced. And we worked with experts on this, biomechanicists at the Royal Veterinary College, in order to get this absolutely right. One of the things that's uh, key to any animal sequence is incorporating the, the, the sounds. Absolutely, and working with Darren, coming up with what did T-Rex sound like. You want to feel it, you know, you really want to feel this huge animal. But equally, we want to be true to the latest scientific thinking. I think, crucially, that we've become completely normalised with the thought that T-Rex spent its life roaring. Yeah. But they wouldn't have roared all the time, would they? No animals do, which was always the test of Darren. Darren's kind of very good at sort of saying, go and find me a modern animal that does that and I'll let you have that. And of course, you're right, they don't. They're often very quiet. This is a, an ambush predator that's kind of sneaking around looking for prey or he's trying to stay out of the way of other T-Rex. He's trying to make as little noise as possible sometimes. Many of the expectations that people have about dinosaur sounds come from basic assumptions about like 
what big scary animals sound like. So most noises associated with T-Rex, you basically just like someone's taken a lion roar and max it up to a thousand. We had this specific mandate on prehistoric planet that these animals are close relatives of birds, they're related to a degree to crocodilians, so let's give them sounds that are crocodilian and bird-based. We had to keep in mind the obviously gigantic size, the enormous resonating capabilities of the huge body of T-Rex. There's a lovely bit of science in the sequence as well where we show the T-Rex nuzzling. Yeah, so during that courtship moment when they've lifted their heads together, they then sort of touch their noses together, the sides of their faces, and that's based on a bit of science that was relatively new at the time when we came up with the sequence. So if an animal like a Tyrannosaurus rex does want to show another individual that they are socially engaging with one another, then it's reasonable to think that something like snout rubbing, body rubbing, nuzzling, these actually would be parts of their behaviour. And we've got reason from Tyrannosaurs specifically to think that their faces were really sensitive. There's evidence from several different studies that the snout and the lower jaw were well supplied with nerves and blood vessels, possibly really quite sensitive, on par with that of crocodiles and alligators. There are multiple sensory structures on the face that mean that their faces are about as sensitive as human fingertips. So we think that these animals probably did engage in face rubbing to show that trust and tenderness was the name of the game at that particular time. Now we know for a fact that dinosaurs, like all animals, well like nearly all animals, met up, engaged in intimate physical acts and baby dinosaurs were the result. How did this actually happen? Well, for a large predatory dinosaur, like a tyrannosaur, we imagine that an individual seeks out or just happens to chance upon a member of the opposite sex. And we see that happening in this sequence. Our male is engaging in some behavior and there's another tyrannosaur on its patch and it's a female. So today she's not gonna be his enemy. They're gonna be very good friends. So they both send body signals to each other. She comes close to him, she's curious, she's looking for a mate herself. And he then decides that he is going to show that he is a potential mate. And he's like, look how impressive I am. He engages in some conciliatory body language. He deliberately exposes his throat. He engages in what's called a low level, non-aggressive communication, which is a kind of low rattling sound, which doesn't travel very far in the environment. It's like kind of the purring of a cat, as in like you can hear it at close range. It's a gamble. She could respond aggressively if she wants to, or she could just clear out of there, but she's interested in the same thing as he is, so she responds with the signal. I found it quite common for people to think that, why aren't paleontologists spending more time thinking about dinosaur sex? Quite a few scientists interested in this subject have actually realistically and in absolute seriousness, they've come up with dinosaur mating poses. So let me assure you, paleontologists have spent more than enough time thinking about dinosaur sex. And once we've got the animal and we've got the idea for the story, we then set about writing a script, which yes. is literally like writing a movie script, but for a five and a half, six minute sequence about natural behaviour. Yeah, trying to reverse engineer 
a real ecological, biological situation that we're showing up to. So we did a lot of thinking about how we build the world first and then thread our story through it. So we did a lot of world building. Mike puts it, you know, if you walk on a really good film set, it's not just the kind of the facade that you're seeing, but if you open a drawer, there'll be a book in the drawer. And if you open the book, there'll be writing in the book. And, you know, it'll all kind of make sense and it'll all tie back to what you're seeing be performed on the stage. You never see as the audience, you never know that book's there, but they've done that world building, which kind of helps to support you in the in the storytelling. So we knew what, what season it was. We did a lot of work about the weather and just build that world up around him. You know, he's in a jungle, so his wound might get infected. These are all things that came and went from the script over time, but they're all in there. And I think you come across, it might not be in the commentary, but it might be in the pictures and it might even be in the sound effects sometimes, this world, this kind of presence of this universe that we've built, which just helps to make it feel more satisfying and complete, which is all part of the magic trick we're trying to pull off. The secrets of the prehistoric planet spellbook. Exactly, yeah, the prehistoric planet spellbook, which I think exists as a massive PDF on Darren's computer somewhere. <laughs> there are certain aspects of the, the secret prehistoric planet spellbook that physically manifest themselves we take the the story beats and we turn them into drawings yeah absolutely so that was the next part of once we understood this the character and, and the story was how are we going to visually depict this where are we putting the cameras how would we cover this story if it was natural history if this was a real animal we needed to film it with all the difficulties of filming a giant predator so yeah storyboards incredibly important we had some really talented storyboard artists literally and sketching out dinosaurs in them like super simple like childlike drawings just to start to work out how do we arrive at it how do we reveal it how does it get from the kill site to the river and how do we do it in a sort of visually interesting way that also shows off the animal and those storyboards they're effectively like a comic book aren't they of the mm. of the of the sequence we then take them and turn them into an animatic which is a moving version of those storyboards that we start to add voice commentary onto and music onto and that's when it really starts to come alive as something you can actually sit back, press play and watch. And I think that's always a key step in the process is when you go from, from those drawings that you kind of have to turn the page and da 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 But then just to be able to sit back with a video file and just watch it and hear it is the first time I think it really comes alive. And that's the only way, really. I think it's really hard until we get to that point to know whether an idea works on the screen. There's one more crucial stage after the animatic, which is when we then go into previs or previsualization, where we create a, a CGI environment and puppet dinosaurs where we then start to map out all of those camera shots because we're going to go out into the real world and film what we call backplates that capture the natural environment and then drop the CGI dinosaurs into those plates. Yeah. But we need to create a shopping list of shots to yeah. grab from a location. Now, as a series producer, I start to get slightly anxious around this time because, you know, you're committing to lots and lots of money mm-hmm a couple of years in advance of the finished product. So a big part of, of that previous period is spent working out your shots. And when you're thinking about T-Rex, I had a massive head, probably the, <laughs> the strongest bite force of any animal ever. Yeah. How on earth would you film that thing? if you're out there for real. And that was really interesting with the previs because you've got the number of camera positions, you've got the length of the lenses. So you think about this incredibly powerful predator. You'd have to be backed off a long way. You wouldn't want a big team, so you might have one camera person in a hide backed off a long way. That gives you a particular kind of visual grammar when you film things that way. You end up with lots of long lens shots, lovely out-of-focus you know, surroundings. But they are little moments. You get a shot here, a shot there, and a couple of shots the next day, a few shots the day after. And we had to reverse engineer that so that the previs looked like it had been shot that way, 
when actually it was a preordained bit of animation. So we had to work really hard to to try and give it that documentary, long lens, observed, pieced together look. Like we just managed to tell a story visually, but we we did succeed in doing so. You know, we were the luckiest prehistoric uh, film crew ever, but it couldn't be too perfect. There's something that John Favreau always uses to describe the overall process. <laughs> there is. I remember you and I on a call with John in the early days as we were talking about all of this, like how the heck do you do this? Where It's all kind of imperfect, but yet it ends up being perfect and feeling real and he actually hit upon this phrase wabi-sabi that I don't think you and I wabi-sabi you and I had not heard this before so he just dropped it in casually assuming we knew what it was and then we spent the next hour after the call trying to get to the bottom of what is wabi-sabi and it's the sort of Japanese enjoyment of imperfection and he's exactly right that does sum it up it's all together and it's all there but it's not so perfect that it doesn't have any heart and doesn't have any history and doesn't have any you know all these human imperfections that are somehow threaded through the sequences all of this talk about how we do it often just came down to those two words wabi-sabi and it was like okay got it it needs more wabi-sabi right okay we kind of knew what to do the t-rex courtship was the very first previs sequence we did which when it came in there was like a moment of excitement wasn't there because we didn't know what we were going to get we'd lived with this thing already for about a year or so and then turning it into a much better quality version of those comic book storyboards (laughs) and animatics and when you turn the screen on and saw it can you remember that moment Absolutely. I remember the, the file coming in, downloading it, and it was a massive trepidation because this was the key to this whole franchise working was us being able to translate our ideas into the visual effects world. And the, the previs was done by MPC. This was the kind of first point at which our ideas had really meshed. And it was just magic to see, even though we'd gone from very quick drawings, we were now in kind of PlayStation 1, N64 level graphics of these dinosaurs. But it was like, wow, these things are alive. You know, they've got little animation tweaks to them. We then had to do the huge round of, okay, that's the animation and that's the first pass. We then do multiple passes just to change camera angles, tighten shots, slow down animation, speed up animation. But it was the first one to go through that process. Yeah, and it's effectively making the films before you've made the film. My name's Amanda Brown. I'm a line producer in the BBC Natural History Unit. A line producer is the person who's in charge of the logistics, the budget, insurance. We are a team who are there to facilitate the editorial ambitions of the programme. The biggest twist for me, I think, when I started, this is the first natural history programme I've worked on where you really don't want animals in your shot. (laughs) You, You want them to just go somewhere else for a little while. When you're starting a landmark programme, you always plan to fail, which sounds a weird thing to say, but you know some shoots are not going to happen and you have to have contingency plans to allow for that. With this one, that variable was COVID. I'm Simon Bell and I'm one of the producers on Prehistoric Planet. We had some great plans for this series in terms of where we were going to film, where we were planning to film, and then the whole world went to hell in a handcart with the global pandemic when COVID struck. And so there was a great period of soul-searching, actually. And after the initial paralysis, we were just looking around the world for countries that we could actually get into. And one of the luxuries about working on a series about dinosaurs is that we are not beholden to the countries where 
animals exist. But when it's dinosaurs that are going to be put in by special effects wizards after the event, as long as the backdrops look believable and are true to where those dinosaurs would have lived, we can film where, wherever we like. We were originally planning to film in Australia. Australia went into lockdown really, really quickly, so massive rethink on where we could film it. Costa Rica was the gift that kept on giving for a very long time during COVID. It's a beautiful place, got so many different environments. You've got volcanic regions, you've got a Pacific coast and an Atlantic coast, you've got cloud forests, you've got proper tropical wet forests. It feels prehistoric when you get into that country. And so we found ourselves travelling to Costa Rica. It was a standing joke. The flight was entirely filled with gap year students and wildlife filmmaking crews. If you were a young person wanting to travel the world, Costa Rica at that time was one of the few countries you could actually get into. So no, no joke, looking around the flight, just gap year students and wildlife film crews. So you've got your tickets to Costa Rica, you've got this wonderful little cartoon made in a game engine on your, on your iPad, and then you land in this beautiful country that looks like it should be full of dinosaurs, thinking, where on earth am I going to film it? I think the first thing to consider is, would the massive creature that is going to be in this sequence fit in that space? you don't really realise how big these animals are. So there was a fair amount of carting enormous cutouts around the world just to give an idea of what that creature would look like if it was in that physical space. Three people would carry in the, sort of the, the triceratops head into this clearing and you'd be thinking, well, if a triceratops was lying there and a T-Rex was kind of eating it... Would its tail was just, just knocked down several of those trees and then you'd find yourself looking for a bigger clearing. When we were filming the shot of the T-Rex drinking in the river, first thing to mention is the camera operators and the whole crew are at least 150 metres away because the last thing you want to be is anywhere near a T-Rex, uh, which does create some issues in terms of imagining where that animal is going to be on the riverbank. We did have a, a T-Rex cutout that we would have just standing up on the ground. So at least that gives you an idea of the, the size of the creature, should it be lying down. But of course you do have to imagine that creature walking around and lifting its head and, and raising itself up to its full height. And there were, there were two methods really. The lo-fi method is simply to get a very big stick and to put a tennis ball on the end of it and then just walk around. So you've got the T-Rex cut out lying on the floor, so at least you know how big the creature's going to be. And then there is simply someone with a massive stick and a tennis ball. The higher tech method was just to get a drone and literally fly it along at head height. So at least the crew then got a feeling for how big that animal would have been in that environment. If you dug into the rushes, there'd be no end of hilarious images of members of the production team racing through frame, carrying a plastic dinosaur, you know, just uh, pretending they were being chased by an even larger dinosaur. And then to make those dinosaurs look realistic once they've been added, a whole series of lighting data has to be collected. Once that CG creature has been built and animated, if you just simply plonk it into that environment without considering the lighting, then it's never going to look like it was really there in real life. And so part of the challenge is getting lots of little gizmos and gadgets into the space in that forest clearing where that dinosaur is eventually going to appear and recording the quality of light, the direction of light, whether the light's being coming through dappled trees from above... And then what the wizards then do is, is re-light their beautiful-looking CG dinosaur with the exact lighting conditions that existed on that day at that time from that direction. And then suddenly it looks like it was really there in that environment. So we end up with a set of what we call rushes in the trade, the basic film stock with nothing in it. 
accept all of our references, and then we give it to MPC, the CGI team, to start sticking the dinosaurs in. One of the things that we always aim to do when making films like Prehistoric Planet is to draw the viewer in emotionally, yeah, uh, to empathise and sympathise with the characters on screen. It's key to the whole thing, really. You know, we can draw people in with the with the visuals and with the excitement of dinosaurs, but we have to kind of reach beyond people who love dinosaurs and we have to tell a good story. And the question we're always asking at every turn in a story is like, why do I care? Why should I keep watching this animal doing its thing? You know, and the reason is that you're empathising with this animal because there's some reflection of your own existence in their daily lives so they're even just trying to find food they're in danger of of being attacked by a predator they're trying to find a mate you know these are all things that we all experience it's amazing how quickly you get over the fact you're watching an animated computer graphics t-rex and then you just like i really hope they get together and have lots of babies and that's our job is to kind of get to that point and it's so silly when you say that like that because what you are watching is, is complete artifice but the heart is real you know the kind of the emotion of the story is real and we really thought this through really carefully to get you to the point in the sequence where you leave going oh, i'm really glad they got together and i hope their eggs are safe and you, you think start thinking beyond that which is ridiculous but that's the magic of of, of tv it's not ridiculous, you know, it's what storytelling is. Yeah. I, you know, having spent all that time planning, researching, then actually shooting, and then all the CGI, mm. which takes months and months and months to complete. We then start working with Andy Jones. He's a multi-Oscar winning animation director. He worked with John Favreau on The Jungle Book and The Lion King. And as you heard John explain in the last episode, They'd spent a lot of time studying the work of the Natural History Unit as reference for their work on those films. It all kind of starts with the eyes for me, which is, you know, a lot of animators, they start with the body and the head. But for me, it's the the eyes. The eyes tell you what the character's thinking and feeling and whether they're happy, sad, upset, sleepy. When you look at a close-up in the series, just really look at what the eyes are doing, how that relates to what the head is doing, how that relates to how the animal's feeling. It's just all tied together, and it's so key to get that right. If it's slightly out of sync, and all of a sudden it feels like puppetry, it feels like, wait a second, I don't buy that the brain is really controlling everything in, in concert. It is like a, it's an orchestra. It's <laughs> all the different controls the animators have, and you have to do every note just right, or it feels off. And it's, it's something that's, you know, it's really kind of fun to, to derive you know, first you think, what do I want out of this scene? What do I want this character to be feeling? Like, say, in the T-Rex courtship. The facial area of a Tyrannosaur is very sensitive to touch. And they nuzzle. As the two kind of go in front nuzzling, there's that, you know, there's nice moments of, you know, contact. And what the eyes are doing is is accepting of each other. And then the, the head and the performance is, a, is all about what they're feeling and how they're, the slight little nuzzling that you might feel. And then of course the details of that, like how hard is the, the head, you know, it's not soft tissue. So when they hit, there's little details to how the heads might collide. One moment I really love is like the bounce light between the two heads as they're really coming close together. It's starting to nuzzle. There's the sunlight's on the other side and it's hitting kind of our heroes and and bouncing into the female's face, this, this kind of key light. And it feels so natural, so real. Because, you know, I've been doing visual effects for so long, I, I can see when lighting is fake. 
And now we have these tools and ability to kind of really replicate realistic light. So from animation to lighting to just making the skin look real and all the scales, the dirt and dust within the scales. I think across the board, you have a high level of artistry. And it was just a pleasure to work with on every aspect of the show. One of the specialities of, of Andy mm -hmm. is that he creates with the animation team those fine nuances yeah. of animals. When you, when you see an animal, it's very, very seldom still. And, and to recreate those tiny nuances of behaviour is real specialism. I still go back and watch the, this scene and spot little muscle twitches or little changes in speed or tilts of heads that I've never really seen before. And I mean, I've probably watched this sequence more than anybody. And there's still things in there. And you think every single one of those things was enacted by an animator, but it subliminally just works to complete the whole picture. And you just believe that this animal is living, breathing, twitching because it's alive. You know, you can't see the human hand driving that. I think the greatest compliment for those guys was when Sir David Attenborough first watched this and he said it was just like watching the animals down a pair of binoculars. Now, I don't think anyone spent as much time as David has watching animals <laughs> down binoculars, so that was a great, great compliment to the animators that they were able to even make him believe that these things were real and give him that sense of watching a real animal. Another big moment is when our fantastic composers, Andre Rosman and Cara Talvi, come on board. They're part of the composer and producer Hans Zimmer's award-winning Bleeding Fingers Collective. What was so, so important for us when we had the meetings with the teams, how they conveyed to us the emotions and the story arcs of each particular scene. That's the most important part of our job, is conveying those emotions and those stories into music. Another T-Rex. The shot dictates the emotion. More intimate scenes might be scored with less instrumentation. A giant aerial shot of nature. That's when we can really sing and bring some big orchestral elements in. Everyone recognizes T-Rex, and you would think that T-Rex would need this amazing, massive theme to it, and that the music could make it even more majestic than the animal actually is. So what was interesting about the courtship sequence is that we put music onto the first scene where we see the T-Rex over the Triceratops. And towards the very end of the production, everyone decided to take the music out there. And it works a lot better because you're just there with the actual animal. You're not glorifying it. You're not saying, oh, he's super scary. And then the next part, when we transition to the T-Rex going to the river and the female T-Rex comes, the music is overly dramatic. They're fooling the audience that they're going to fight. And then that transitions into the sequence where they mate, and you get this unintrusive, ambient piece of music. The music helps in a way fooling the audience in the middle, 
we tried to just make the characters be the characters and not putting a hat on a hat with the music to say too much. For this series, we wanted to create custom instruments that gave an otherworldly soundscape. We wanted it to be something no one's ever heard before. We created instruments out of fossils, petrified wood, dinosaur replica bones, and some real bones as well and we came up with a few instruments which play with our orchestra and gives the orchestra an otherworldly feel. So we recorded so-called raptor violin. The hadro cello. Rex was awesome. And then the final cherry on top of the cake is Sir David Attenborough coming in and doing the voice. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest days when it jumps, you know, if it's got to get to 100, it jumps from sort of 70 up to 95 is the day that Sir David Attenborough does his voiceover and we have the voice, which I think just helps to complete the picture. The power of fresh water is at work all around the planet. He does it in a wanna, doesn't he? He does. You don't need many retakes because... Well, it's yeah. like having the best storyteller on the planet yeah. telling you a story about dinosaurs. Here live some of the most gigantic plant eaters that have ever existed. Absolutely is, yes. It's so strange because he something like, this is a story that, you know, we wrote together, <laughs> you and I, but then David reads it and you think it's, it now just, it's taken on a whole, a whole new level, you know. It's part of some long and proud history of stories that he's told <laughs> to the world and that's when it really takes on a life of its own. When I saw the final version of the T-Rex courtship, sequence. I got a shiver down my spine. At every single point, at every single frame, there are hundreds of people on their absolute A-game, and that's what makes it work. And it's also a unique combination of people who would never normally work together coming together to make something really special. Everyone sits back and goes, that's pretty good, that, isn't it? <laughs> Everyone's really happy with it, and smiling at the end of it, and you think, yeah, that's... that's yeah, there's, a, there's some incredible collaboration going on in there. There are times when you really have to pinch yourself to realise that this is a digital artefact. This is a series of ones and zeros that somebody's put together and made this incredible event. I just find that absolutely extraordinary. The most amazing part of our job is definitely watching it all come together in the end and seeing how each department is so important in making an impact on the final result of the show. Now you have the sound effects layered in, the animation's done, the music is there, the narration is there, and it all comes together 
in this beautiful way. It, it really still hits you emotionally. It really was a, such a joyful moment. It brought tears to my eyes just because it's, it's so beautiful. You know, I think it's, it was more beautiful than I think any of us imagined. And we imagined a lot, but I think it, it really surpassed even what I thought the sequence could be. And it, when I see it, I'm like, oh, it's so beautiful. <laughs> and it just really kind of, when the whole magic trick works, it just it emotionally brings it to such a high level. I love it. In a VFX world, you can put a camera anywhere. But if you do try that, it won't look authentic. And it took us a while to work out those rules of engagement, if you like. But that sequence was the one that, that established those rules. Tim and Paul talked there about the idea of the spellbook in the drawer. And that's the idea that the detail of world building really matters. Even if the audience can't see it, they feel it. And it's quite nice to hear that producers actually do listen to me occasionally when I talk about this stuff. But the reason I do it is because I think it informs your vision and it helps keep the approach coherent and, most important, authentic. Because it's that authenticity that makes all the difference. This has been Prehistoric Planet, the official podcast. Follow and listen on Apple Podcasts and watch Prehistoric Planet on Apple TV Plus, where available. All episodes are available now. This is an Apple TV Plus podcast produced by BBC Studios Natural History Unit, hosted by me, Mike Gunton, along with the Prehistoric Planet team. Our executive producers are Kate Taylor and Lee Bacon. The producers are Tiffany Cassidy, Binu Kutani and Tom Bonnet, with additional producing from Hannah Rogers. The engineer is Peregrine Andrews. Extracts from the television series narrated by David Attenborough. The main title music for Prehistoric Planet was composed by Hans Zimmer and Andrew Christie. Original music by Hans Zimmer, Andre Rosman and Carl Talve for Bleeding Fingers Music. The score producers are Hans Zimmer and Russell Emanuel, and the score supervisors are Greg Rappaport and Marsha Bow. The music is performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales.